Man, am I loud? Am I loud to you guys? Do I seem loud? I'm good? Whew, man. Sounds like I'm like listening to myself and my own thoughts. It's kind of strange. Uh, well, it's so good to see you guys this morning. Um, I don't know about you guys, but uh, I, I told the people in the Rooted class this morning that um, I'm, I'm kind of working through some emotions right now because yesterday was 40 degrees. It was beautiful. Uh, I was ready to put on my swim trunks and go for a dip in the lake. And then this morning, my still damp hair froze. It froze, and I did not like that one bit. So I'm, I'm, I'm working through some things right now, guys. But uh, what's that? It's not Tennessee. It is not. And uh, that's where I'm from, actually. Thanks for the segue into the sermon, man. I appreciate that. Uh, but uh, as uh, some of you may already know who have been coming here for a while, and, and, and even if you didn't know it, you know it now, or you would have figured it out by my thick southern drawl, uh, that I was uh, born and raised in East Tennessee. Uh, but since the first several years of mine and my wife's marriage, we, we moved around quite a bit until the Lord led us here to St. Albans. Now, in the midst of all this moving around, we, we occasionally had the chance to, to visit my hometown in Tennessee. And, and to be completely honest with you guys, I, I love my hometown. I love it. It is right at the foothills of the Great Smoky Mountain National Park. It had a nice downtown area. It had nice parks. It was, it was a wonderful town. It was a, it was a great place to grow up. And whenever I get the chance to, to visit Maryville, and it's actually, it's actually spelled Maryville, but if you're from Maryville, you say Maryville, or if you're from the, if you're from the mountains, you say Maryville. And, uh, <laughs> but uh, anytime that I go back, I'm, I'm, I'm greeted by my, my wonderful family and by my friends that I've had since high school, and, and I'm greeted with, with love and friendship. It is a place that I, I deeply cherish, even though the Lord has created a, a new love for my heart, or in my heart, for this home, my, my home in St. Albans. But that, that's, that's how visiting hometown should be, right? That's, that's how it should be. A walk down memory lane and having a good time with, with loved ones who welcome you with, with open arms to meet with old friends and to, to catch up and reminisce of, of old days. And that's, that's, what, that's what I hope for every time I get the chance to go back. As we'll see in our passage today, the first six verses of Mark 6, Jesus decides to travel back to his own hometown of Nazareth. But Jesus has a very different experience than my own. And instead of being welcomed with, with love, he received scorn. Instead of having a pleasant conversation with, with old friends, he was the target of insults. Instead of being welcomed with, with open arms, he was rejected. Now, within this account of Jesus visiting Nazareth, we see a microcosm. We see a small picture of the world around us, a world that, that though it may at times be astonished at the teaching of Jesus, it still yet rejects him. And in this painful homecoming, we see a brief glimpse of what could be in store for us and our own lives as we live and follow for Christ and after Christ. But before we dig into our passage today, let us pray for the Holy Spirit's guidance. 
Lord, we ask you, God, to be with us this morning. We pray that your Holy Spirit, Lord, just gives us the ears to hear the things that you want us to learn this morning. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit pierces our consciences with your word, with your truth, Father. And I pray that we can, God, listen attentively to your word. God, I pray this in your son's name. Amen. All right, so chapter 6 opens up with Jesus leaving the area of Capernaum where he had been preaching and doing miracles and he makes this return visit to his hometown in Nazareth, as we said before. Now, now Nazareth was a, a very small and obscure village. It covered roughly 60 acres of land and it held within it uh, fewer than 500 people. It was, it was a tiny town and so it was hard to imagine, or sorry, it's not hard to imagine, that Jesus had, had met and known to nearly the entire village, right? This tiny little place that he grew up in for 30 years. It makes sense that he would know nearly everyone, or at least have some cursory knowledge of nearly everyone in Nazareth. And so we read in verses 1 and 2, He went away from there, meaning Capernaum, and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed. And on the Sabbath he began to teach. Now in the synagogues during this time, it was customary to allow a traveling teacher or rabbi who was visiting the privilege of teaching on the Sabbath. And Jesus had, had sort of begun to, to gain this reputation of being a teacher as he went about preaching throughout Capernaum. And so it makes sense that this, this reputation that he had gained kind of met him or, or went before him all, all the way back to Nazareth. It kind of led all the way back to his hometown of Nazareth. So more than likely, the leaders of the local synagogue invited Jesus to take a passage of Scripture and to teach. As we continue reading in verse 2, we see that the people in the synagogue listening to Jesus were absolutely astonished at his teaching. Now, we heard something like this before, right? In Mark 1, we saw Jesus preach in another synagogue in Capernaum, and the reaction of that crowd was also astonishment. But there's a sharp difference, a sharp difference between the astonishment of the people in Capernaum and the astonishment of the people here in Nazareth. Let's keep reading in verse 2, and you'll see what I mean. We see that in their astonishment, they begin to ask questions. Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to this man? Or in other words, how does, how does he know these things about Scripture? How are, uh, or how, does, how is he speaking with, with such wisdom as if, he, as if he knows the true meaning of this passage that he's reading from? That's another question. How are such mighty works done by his hands? How is he doing these miracles that we have heard about? From, from where is he getting this power? You see, they are asking these questions because they knew Jesus. They knew him. They watched him grow from a boy to a man. And while they knew that he was a, a good child, never breaking any rules, and they knew he was an honest teenager and that he was a hardworking man, they also knew that he didn't get any formal training as a rabbi. They knew that he didn't sit, sit at the feet of any famous teachers like Gamaliel. 
They knew he didn't have any teaching credentials. They knew Jesus. And yet, here he is, teaching like one who has authority. He didn't quote other rabbis or, or Pharisees as all the other teachers did. He spoke as if he himself knew the true meaning of Scripture. No one taught like that. No one. And then as we look at verse 3, we see that their questions start becoming these lightly veiled insults. And we begin to understand that the astonishment that those in the synagogue in Nazareth, the, the, the astonishment that they felt was not a feeling of awe and adoration for Jesus, but of contempt. They begin by asking, is this not the carpenter? Is this not the carpenter? Now the Greek word used for carpenter is the Greek word tectone. Tectone. Now often when we think of Jesus being a tectone, we think of him only being a woodworker. But this word is not just used for carpentry, but also stonemasonry. So typically a tectone would be someone who would use both stone and wood in his work. Uh, so a, a better word might be a builder. And his job would range from building houses to tables to the yokes of oxen that they would, that they would wear and everything in between. And it's important for us to know as well that for the people in this uh, sorry, profession in the Jewish culture of that day, they were not highly looked upon. They were not. To be a tectone was to be someone with, with low prestige, to be considered just a, a workhorse. They were often seen as unintelligent. They didn't have time to study at the synagogues or sit at the feet of rabbis and, and listen carefully to, to lectures all day long. They, they had work to do. So those in the synagogue are saying that, that this, this builder, this manual labor worker, this, this blue-collared guy, this, this guy who we know has no formal training whatsoever is teaching us? And not only that, but he is doing it as one who has authority? This is ridiculous. This is crazy. And then they then follow this insult up with yet another. And they say, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, or Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? Now, at first glance, this may not seem like an insult. It may even sound like they're simply trying to be sure that, that this is the right Jesus, that they're talking about the right guy, that this is the same one that used to live just down the road. But the fact that they said the son of Mary is significant. Now some look at this and say the reason why they said the son of Mary rather than the son of Joseph was because they were just trying to show Mary some special honor. Or maybe that they say it because maybe Joseph passed away. Well, neither of those is actually true. You see, even if a father was dead, the son was always always identified by his relation to his father. So it was customary to always use the father's name, the son of the father. And whenever a mother's name was used, it typically only meant one thing. The child was thought to be illegitimate. 
And so this question from the crowd in the synagogue shows us that there was this, this widespread belief in his hometown that Jesus was illegitimate. That Mary and Joseph conceived Jesus out of wedlock. There may have even been rumors that, uh, that, that Mary was, was something of a harlot. And that uh, Jesus was not his, uh, or sorry, that Joseph was not Jesus' father, but some other man. So all of these questions being asked about Jesus, they're nothing short than ridicule. They're insults leveled at Christ. And so we see clearly that Jesus was not highly thought of in his hometown. And verse 3 ends with these words, and they took offense at him. They took offense at him. And the Greek word translated offense is scandalon, which is where we get our word scandalize. Bible translators Bratcher and Nita gives us a helpful definition of this word. They say scandalon means to be offended and repelled to the point of abandonment. And so those in, in Jesus' hometown, those, those faces in the crowd that had watched him grow from, from a boy to a man, were scandalized by Jesus. They were offended by him. They were repelled by him to the point where they wanted nothing to do with him. In their eyes, he was a blight. He was a source of shame to Nazareth. And now, brothers and sisters, this is, this is incredibly, incredibly profound. And there are, are unbelievably important lessons for us here in this, in this scenario, in this episode, uh, and for those who claim to be followers of Christ. There are hard truths here that we must approach with divinely given courage and faith. The first lesson I mentioned in the introduction to this sermon this scene in the synagogue of Nazareth serves as a picture of the rejection of Jesus by the world. You see, there's a, a version of Jesus that this world loves, that this world is more than happy to embrace. A version of Jesus who has nothing but soft edges, whose only defining characteristic is a, a sin-warped view of love. A Jesus who lacks true biblical righteousness. A Jesus who never describes himself as a judge of the wicked, as he does in Matthew 25 or, or John 9. A Jesus who, who doesn't have a moral standard by which we are called to live our lives to. A Jesus that, that doesn't say that the only way to God, the only way to God, is through faith in his name alone. That Jesus, the world loves and accepts with open arms. But that Jesus is an idol. It's an idol the sinful world has made to replace the one true Jesus of Scripture that they have rejected. And yet even though those in the world are described in Scripture as enemies of God, and he, uh, sorry, just as he entered into Nazareth, or, or just as he entered into Nazareth, he also entered into the world to save his people who were once his enemies. How, in, how incredible is that? In fact, he, he died to do so. Paul says this beautiful truth in Romans 5.10. 
It says, For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of His Son, while we were still His enemies, we certainly will be saved through the life of His Son. Oh, Christian, do you, do you see the beauty here? Do you see the beauty of this? You were once a part of that crowd in Nazareth. You were amongst those who mocked and scorned and had hatred in your heart for the King of Kings. And not only that, brothers and sisters, but you were one of those faces in the crowd as Jesus was being whipped and tortured on His way to Calvary, cheering for more. You were there. You were spitting on Him as He fell under the weight of the cross. You and I hammered those nails into His hands and His feet. That is what our sinfulness did to the Son of God. And yet He, he endured our hatred. He endured our mockery and our scorn so that we did not have to endure the wrath of the Father. As Isaiah 53, 7 says, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet He did not open His mouth. He was like a lamb led to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shears is silent, so He did not open His mouth. Also that He could take you and I, enemies of God, and wrap us in the warmth of His righteousness and call us friends. Call us co-heirs. Call us beloved. Call us children of God. That is the first profound truth that we see here. And just a quick aside before we get to the, the second truth. Can you, can you just for one moment, just for one moment, try to wrap your mind around the humility of Christ. The humility of Christ. Because this passage clues us in on the life that Jesus had during the 30 years before His ministry began, like, like no other passage. Jesus worked the majority of His life as a carpenter or a builder, which, remember, was not a job that, that was looked well upon. There is something marvelous and overwhelming at that thought. He who made heaven and earth and the oceans and the seas and everything that they contain, Yahweh Himself took on the form of a servant. And He worked with His hands. And He chose to be a second-class citizen with, with calloused and, and scarred hands. And not only that, but for 30 years... For 30 years, Jesus lived under the stigma of being an illegitimate child. Can you picture being the God of the universe and to walk down the street with people giving you sideways, sideways glances, thinking that you're a dullard because of your occupation, and to have them whisper behind your back that you do not truly belong here? That your mother may be a harlot or your father and mother sinners who are unable to control their sexual impulses. And yet it was into this lowly rank in life that Jesus chose to occupy without an ounce of shame. And friends, this is, this is kind of hard for us to imagine, right? It's hard for us to imagine because what is our first reaction when those around us are spreading vile rumors about us? Or when others look down on us because of our occupation or family or social status. 
Is it anger? Is it resentment? How about an urge to defend yourself, to, to prove yourself to them? Well, Jesus took every ounce of humiliation that came his way with utter humility and meekness. Not weakness, those who are not the same, but with meekness, so that through your faith in him, as 1 Peter 5, 6 tells us, that in the right time, that he would exalt you. That's why he suffered those things. That is why he went through all of that, plus the cross, so that you and I, sinners saved by grace, may be exalted. Now, brothers and sisters, that immeasurable love and humility should, it should overwhelm you. It should overwhelm you. And it should cause us to ask ourselves, are we following Christ's example of humility? And that actually brings us to our second lesson that this passage teaches us. And I'm going to phrase this lesson in the form of a question. That's much like the one that I just asked. Are you willing to be humbled for the sake of Christ. Are you willing to be humbled for the sake of Christ? That's an incredibly important question that you and I must ask ourselves. You see, as we have spoken about before, there is a false gospel. Paul mentioned it. That says, becoming a Christian means an easy life with no struggles. No opposition. But friends, this episode in Nazareth is not just a microcosm of the unbelieving world's rejection of Jesus, but it is a picture of what we should also expect from the world. Look at Jesus' words in Luke 12, 51-53. Luke 12, 51-53. says, Do you think I have come to give peace on earth? No. I tell you, but rather division. From now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two, two against three. They will be divided, father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. These are harsh and difficult words from Jesus, aren't they? not ones that you, you hear talked about too often, especially in this culture. And what does, what does Jesus mean here? What does he truly mean here? Well, it's kind of explained for us a little bit better in, in John 15, 18 through 20, which says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world love you, loves you as, it, it, oh sorry, as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the, uh, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecute me, they will also persecute you. Remember that this world is at odds with God. And as you make a stand for biblical truths, you will run into opposition. You will run into those who hate you for what you believe. They will speak ill of you. They will try to get you fired. Or they will call you a bigot or intolerant. They will believe you to be closed-minded and unloving. 
And that opposition that you face can come from those who you know the best. Even your own family. Even those in your own hometown. But friends, take heart. Take heart. Because the same cup of pain that you drink that is poured for you by the unbelieving world is shared by your loving Savior. And for those, who, uh, those of you who suffer for standing for biblical truth, for standing for the gospel, for the sake of Christ, listen to what 1 Peter 4, 12 through 16 and 19 says. It says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in that name. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to the faithful Creator while doing good. And friends, remember, I asked the question, are you willing to be humbled for the sake of Christ? And I asked that question because suffering for the name of Christ, it takes humility. It takes great humility. It takes not being afraid of what the world believes of you. Because you have entrusted your soul to the Creator. And so Christian, as you go out into the world as an ambassador of Christ, as 2 Corinthians 5.20 calls us, ask yourself the question. Ask yourself the question, are you ashamed of the gospel? Are you ashamed of the gospel? Sincerely ask yourself that question. Is there anything about Jesus, like those in Nazareth, that offends you, that is a scandal to you? Is there anything about Jesus that embarrasses you and causes you to not want to be, as, as R.C. Sproul puts it, a, a secret service Christian? To not want anyone to know your real identity as a Christian because you find being identified with Him embarrassing or a source of shame. And if so, friends, I urge you to pray that God will change your heart. That He will change your heart and cause you to love and adore Him because that is the only, the only right response to the one who did not see it shameful to humble Himself and suffer for you. Philippians 2, 5-8 says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But what did he do? He emptied himself, and he became a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now Jesus' response to the rejection of those in his hometown, which, by the way, we find out in Mark 3, included his own family, who are at this point unbelievers, was to align himself with the ancient prophetic tradition. 
Quoting an old adage, Jesus says in verse 4, a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and among relatives and in his own household. Dr. Dan Aiken, in his commentary on Mark, he says, Jesus acknowledges with a broken heart his rejection by those who knew him best. Those you would have thought expected would stay with him no matter what anyone else said or did. They knew him, but they could not explain him, and so they rejected him. His hometown, his relatives, even his whole household cast their balance against him. He goes on to make the point that, that sometimes when we spend so much time with someone, we begin to not appreciate them. And we even, we even value what they say less. Husbands might not take the advice of their wives, but they will pay close attention to what a work acquaintance will say. Wives may not listen to their husbands, but they will act on the words of, of the people in a discussion group. And for some who are raised in a Christian environment, this is absolutely an ever-present danger that we must be aware of. And in one sense, we should, we should never get comfortable with Jesus. We should never get comfortable with Him. Jesus does not want to make us comfortable, friends. He wants, us to, he wants to bring us to repentance and faith, humbly falling at His feet, confessing Him as Lord and as God. Think of the grand privilege of Nazareth. They had the incarnate Word of God walking among them for 30 years. For 30 years. And yet because they thought that they knew Him, they rejected Him. John Calvin comments about this. He says, In this miracle of a carpenter having such biblical insight, they ought to have perceived the hand of God. But their ingratitude made them cover themselves in darkness. How many of you have been walking with the Lord for one or two or many years and assume that you know everything that you need to know about Him and thus have become bored with Him? If we are not careful, our awe of Jesus can turn into a yawn. So we must strive to always see Jesus correctly. Not as, your, not as your homeboy, which I'm ashamed to say that I once sold a t-shirt that said that when I worked at a Christian bookstore. Or see him as your, as your pal that you hang out with once in a while to get inspiration for your next Facebook post. Or your personal genie in a bottle. But we want to see him as he truly is. As he truly is as the Lord, as the Savior, Master, and King who grants you, who grants you the privilege of calling Him friend. We are then given another detail by Mark in verse 5 and 6, which says, And He could do no mighty work there, except that He laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. And He marveled, because of their unbelief. Now there have been some who have looked at this verse, at this passage, and claimed that Jesus' power could not work in the midst of a lack of faith. They claim that, that faith was essentially the, the juice that fueled Jesus' abilities. 
But friends, let me assure you, that is, that is not what's going on here. That's not what's going on here. There are two overlapping explanations to this. The first is that he could do no mighty works in Nazareth for the simple reason the people wanted nothing to do with him. In their stiff, naked belief, they refused to go to Jesus in faith to receive anything miraculous. Only a very few would dare approach Jesus for healing. The second is that to do miracles in such an environment of blatant rejection and unbelief would be out of his nature. Tim Keller explains this well. He says, Jesus' miracles were were not magic tricks designed to prove how powerful he was, but they were signs of the kingdom to show how his redemptive power operates. His miracles always healed and restored and delivered people in ways that revealed how we are to find Him by faith and have our lives transformed by Him. He could not do a miraculous deed that would not redeem. To work a miracle for a people so set against Jesus in their hearts, no matter how spectacular, would not produce faith in their hearts. And because of their unbelief, Jesus was amazed. And I think Mark added this detail, not because Jesus was surprised that they were unbelievers, but because of the absolute depths of the contempt they had for Him. A contempt that would soon grow in intensity and turn to hostility. But as you are reading this passage, a question that might arise in your minds is, is why didn't they believe? Why didn't they believe? Sure, they, they knew Jesus, and they, they, they knew His background, His mother, His, his family, but they still heard His teaching, right? And they, they still knew of His miracles. They even, they even saw some done in their midst as Jesus was able to heal some of them. So why, why was that not enough? Well, the simple answer is, as as one theologian says, that they did not believe for the same reason that your next-door neighbor doesn't believe. They didn't believe for the same reason that your cousin or or friend or co-worker doesn't believe. They did not believe in Jesus because God the Holy Spirit had not invaded their hearts and given their dead souls new life. That's it. Unless the Spirit renews the heart of sinful human beings, none can truly come to Him. Before the Spirit invaded your own heart and opened your own eyes, Jesus was a stumbling block to you. You rejected Him as strongly as these people did. So did I. No amount of evidence could melt the stony hearts of those in Nazareth, and no amount of evidence to the truth of Christianity will melt the hearts of the unbelievers who surround us today. Individuals are not saved by witnessing miracles or by being given evidence to the existence of God, but by the Holy Spirit reviving dead hearts through the proclamation of the gospel. That's it. That is it. Listen to Paul's words in 1 Timothy 3, 4-6. through It says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, 
He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Praise God. So friends, I want to conclude by asking again, is there something about Jesus that offends you? Do we, do we feel or show contempt to anything that we find in Scripture? Quoting again from Dr. Aiken, are we scandalized by the simplicity of His gospel? Are we offended by the unfairness of its message that says even a rapist or a murderer on death row can be made right with God by childlike faith in Jesus Christ? Is that a scandal to you? Or do we allow the Scripture to slay our biases and reshape our preconceived notions of who Jesus must be for us to accept Him and trust Him? Or again, have we become so familiar with Him, coming to church Sunday after Sunday, that His words no longer pierce our consciences or hearts? Do the miracles that we see Him do in our lives no longer bring us to a place of awe? And does the death on the cross no longer bring us to our knees in worship? Or do you ask God daily to refresh your love for Him, your adoration for Him, and your passion to humble yourself to serve Him in the midst of suffering, persecution, and ridicule. Let's pray to that end. Father God, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that your Son chose freely to humble himself, to come into this world, to be rejected by the very ones he came to save, to be rejected by his family, his hometown, the entire world, Lord. All so that he could make your enemies through faith in your son, your friends, your children, your beloved. Father, I pray, Lord, that you give us hearts that never get bored with that, that never get bored with that wonderful truth. I pray that you refresh our minds and our hearts daily, God, to the awe-inspiring humility and love that you showed us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Let us not be ashamed of the gospel. Let us not be ashamed for standing for biblical truth. Father, we love you. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen.